Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome back to Sean's Wildlife Podcast. Eager listeners may have noticed we took a little bit of a break for the last couple of weeks. Uh, We were producing weekly episodes and uh, hoping to produce one every two to three weeks from now on. Um, But I'm really, really excited on this episode to welcome David Hedrington. And David is Woodland Advisor at the Cairngorms National Park Authority. And also, uh, he is the author of a book called The Links and Us, which is why I've invited him on tonight. So David, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. So, David, um, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and um, your current role as Woodland Advisor in Cairngorms? So I've been uh, working uh, for the Cairngorms National Park Authority now for about 15 years. Uh, I've been involved, I guess, in a variety of different roles and projects. Um, At the moment, it's woodland. I have also in the past worked uh, specifically on wildcat conservation, but a whole heap of other things from raptors to capercaillie and everything in between. Um, So yeah, these days it's about trying to bring about woodland expansion, primarily native woodland expansion uh, across the national park. Um, we have uh, you know, a real um, wide variety of species that are, I suppose, quite uh, focused in the Cairngorms National Park and are not found elsewhere in the UK, and, and many of them are woodland dependent. So it's a real hotspot for woodland biodiversity. Uh, so I, I'm eagerly trying to expand that habitat and, and make sure it's done in a very sort of joined up, connected way. Yeah, and it's quite a debate, I suppose, or a hot topic um, in Scotland specifically, isn't it, around kind of rewilding and restoring the natural ecology. Um, It seems to be all about tree cover and um, sheep and deer play into that a lot, you know, with uh, kind of high levels of of herbivores and and preventing kind of forest um, regeneration or that natural succession um, process. What would you say is the kind of uh, general atmosphere in kind of rewilding spheres around um around scotland and sheep and deer well yeah i mean there's a big um government focus on on woodland creation in scotland and and not just that also peatland restoration both are felt to be uh, major ways of contributing to the fight against climate change Uh, and clearly you know growing trees uh, in an environment where you've got a lot of large herbivores whether those are livestock or or whether those are wild deer is going to be uh, potentially problematic uh, unless you use um, quite expensive uh, fencing which is tends to be the traditional way of creating woodland uh, in scotland these days is to fence and plant and of course that comes with a pretty hefty price tag Uh, deer fencing in particular is not cheap Um, so um, you know some people have been our arguing for a more natural way of doing that, which is to rely not so much on planting, but on natural regeneration. Uh, And in order to do that, uh, to to have lower um, uh, pressures, I suppose, from uh, large herbivores such as livestock and deer. Uh, And that that has been happening in several parts of the Highlands for for years now. I mean, I guess the word rewilding burst onto the scene, uh, you know, maybe less than 10 years ago, helped greatly, I suppose, by George Monbiot's book, Feral. Uh, But he he didn't invent uh, the concept or the word. He'd be the first to admit that. 
And actually rewilding as a process, I would argue, has been going on in the Highlands for you know, 20, 30 years in, in some places. It probably just hasn't been called rewilding. And there's still a bit of reluctance, I think, in Scotland to use the word rewilding. Uh, it's, so rewilding happens, but it's, it's often not called that. Um, Partly because I think it's synonymous in many people's minds with large carnival reintroduction, which some people feel is highly contentious. Um, and other people, I think, have a, perhaps an image in their mind that rewilding equals depeopling. And of course, depeopling is, is a big thing in Scotland, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, as it has been, of course, in Ireland. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of synonymous with the, with the Highland clearances, which was a, a period of, of kind of enforced evictions in the Highlands. So, yeah, it, it's, it has some unfortunate connotations because I think many people in, uh, involved in rewilding would, would say, well, actually, no, it's not about depeopling. If anything, it's about repeopling. Um, yeah, and, and we're certainly seeing you know bodies such as Rewilding Europe, which are largely active on the European continent, especially in Southern Europe and Eastern Europe. They see rewilding as a way of combating rural depopulation and actually reversing land abandonment, which seems to be almost the polar opposite of how many people perceive rewilding in Scotland. So, like I say, there's a little bit of a reluctance to use rewilding uh, as a word in Scotland, but actually, I think the process is probably well underway in many places. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say it definitely has um, some negative connotations for some people, doesn't it? And yeah. I think um, the farming community in particular, um, you know, you know, a lot of rewilding talk is about, you know, taking um, herbivores or reducing the impact of herbivores on the system. And when it comes to, you know, generations of, of sheep farmers feeling that their livelihood is under threat, obviously they're going to rally against that or be fearful or, or nervous of the movement as it as it stands. Yeah, sure. I mean that's understandable, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um but the basic principles of it, whether you kind of call it rewilding or not, um one of the the aims of it and um, which you know has been going on is restoring natural ecosystems and and taking or kind of undoing some of the damage, I suppose, man-made damage that we've done to the landscape and and trying to help nature recover and and combat climate change, as you say, with more tree cover and restoring peatlands and things. Um but one of the the um ways of doing that of, of truly restoring ecosystems and in particular tackling the the deer problem and we touched on this in the the deer episode i'm not sure if you had a chance to listen to that one david but, um, i did yeah it's, did you yeah it certainly um struck up a lot of interesting conversations from people because we talked about actually the fact that you know we have six different species of deer in the uk um four of them are non-native and and they have no natural predators so one of the kind of goals of rewilding um, or aims is to bring back some of those natural predators and i think what surprises a lot of people um is that you know in britain we did have large predators um we just eliminated them and the three main ones that are talked about are bears wolves and lynx um, and i would suggest that the lynx probably is the one that um, is most likely uh, to to be reintroduced for a number of reasons. Would you agree? Yeah, I, th I think so. Uh, um, what we know from uh, looking at other European countries where they often, you know, they, they, they will have still uh, populations of lynx, wolves and bears is when people are asked for their perceptions of those species, uh, people are generally much more comfortable with lynx than they are with the other two species. Um, I, I suppose many people in Britain assume that the, the bear is going to come out uh, last and actually it typically 
typically isn't. It, it's wolves that, 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 that is the species that many people are most concerned about living alongside, either in terms of their own right. personal safety or the impacts they might have uh, on livestock or the impacts on uh, you know the, the deer that they also want to shoot. Uh, but lynx yeah. tend to be the, the the one species kind of universally across Europe that, of large carnivore that most Europeans are, are happiest to live alongside. Yeah, and I think that boils down to the fact that you know I don't know of any reports of attacks by on humans by lynx. Um, they're a very secretive animal, aren't they? And they don't come into contact with humans very much, either directly or indirectly in terms of um, kind of livestock and things. Whereas I think uh, the wolf, you know, in in even as far back as you know childhood fairy tales, got it's got a bad PR uh, rep, doesn't it? It does, uh, for sure. The, the wolf is usually cast as the bad guy in a lot of our morality tales and fairy tales over the years. Yeah. Uh, the, the lynx has very little, if any, cultural connotations. You know, we, we don't have, you know, fairy tales about, you know, uh, Goldilocks and the Three Lynx or, you know, uh, Little Red Riding Hood yeah, with the lynx dressed up the granny. Yeah, that, that doesn't happen. Um, and actually, they're yeah. very rarely depicted in art and, and things like that. And, and your know, place name evidence from around Europe suggests you're far more likely to have fox and wolf and bear place names than you are to have lynx place names. And I think much of that probably stems from the fact that lynx are very shy and elusive creatures uh, that we typically tend not to see. You know, their behavior is pretty cryptic. They, they like to stick to cover. They're probably quite fearful of humans. Uh, and they've learned the hard way, I suppose, that humans are bad news for lynx, which isn't to say that lynx can't occasionally, very occasionally in certain circumstances, pose a, a, a threat to humans. And I think it's important to be, to be clear about this. So whilst a healthy lynx has never been known to uh, attack, uh, there's no reliable records of a, of a healthy lynx attacking humans. There are a small number of records from particularly Eastern Europe of rabid animals uh, approaching humans and in some cases even attacking humans. Uh, and that's typically resulted okay. in people having to go to the hospital and get uh, um, you know, hospital treatment for that. Uh, but that's a very unusual, very rare set of circumstances, which we would anticipate would never happen in the UK, because obviously if they were ever to be reintroduced here, there would obviously be rigorous veterinary screening, uh, and we certainly wouldn't be importing rabid animals into the, into the country. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it's, it is important to be honest about these mm -hmm. things, isn't mm -hmm. it, and, and um, not gloss over stuff. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of the history of um, lynx in Britain? I believe they died out around uh, the 7th century AD, so it's quite a long time ago, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a fair long time ago, although actually I would argue that they were here more recently than that. Um, and, and actually, we, if you look at some of the, the, the texts written about lynx in the 70s, 80s and perhaps early 90s, that they're, they're variously described as having died out in the Britain at the end of the Ice Age, so something like 10,000 years ago. Uh, some people have suggested that Mesolithic humans made them extinct, so, you know, who knows, 6,000 years ago. Uh, and then the, the extinction date was brought forward to about four. 4,000 years ago, um, when it was suggested that a, a skull that was found in the in the bone caves near Inchnadamp in the northwest Scottish Highlands, which was actually in very good nick, uh, and that mm. skull can be seen in the National Museum of Scotland today, it's on display, uh, it was in cave layers that were thought to also have uh, Neolithic charcoal. And so therefore, the... the um, the, the skull was roughly dated at about 4,000 years old because our climate um, changed round about then to become a bit cooler and wetter. 
uh, it was assumed, it was somewhat boldly, I have to say, that lynx died out 4,000 years ago because of natural climate change. Now, there's an awful lot of assumptions being made there. And of course, I would look at a map of Europe and say, well, actually, there's, uh, you know, lynx are living in some pretty cold, wet parts of Europe today, such as in, you know, parts of Norway. So why on earth wouldn't they, would they have uh, died out because of, of the, a changing climate in the UK? Uh, and sure enough, um, those bones were radiocarbon dated for the first time in the 1990s uh, and turned out not to be 4,000 years old, but actually only 1,800 or so years old. So much, oh, wow. much more recent than, uh, than the period of natural climate change. You're beginning now to sort of say, hey, well, later survival implies a, a human agency uh, in their uh, extinction. And I was involved in um, a paper which radiocarbon dated lynx bones that had been found in North Yorkshire uh, from uh, limestone caves there. Uh, and again, one of them turned out to be similar in age to the Inch Nadamph uh, dates, about 1800 years old. One of them, however, was only about 1500 or so year old. Uh, so it, coming, coming out of the Roman era okay. into the early medieval era. And uh, I kind of helped sort of tie that together with some medieval, early medieval Welsh poetry set in the Lake District, which strongly suggested that lynx were being hunted uh, in the Lake District round about the sort of 7th century AD. Um, but more recently, when I was researching my book, um, I found reference to some 15th century Welsh poetry in which it describes the behaviour of an animal called the Llawbrich. And the, the Llawbrich literally means the speckled lion. And what this animal right. was doing is it was following the roebucks uh, up into the hills in the summer months as the, the roebucks were taking advantage of the, of the kind of fresh growth uh, as the, the summer hit the hills higher up and the lynx was moving up into the hills to, to follow that. And I thought, wow, oh, here we go. What on, earth, what on earth else could a, a speckled lion be, especially if it's you know, um, following the, the Eurasian lynx's favourite prey, the rodeo? And this seemed to me like some really good uh, evidence for the late survival of lynx in North Wales in the 15th century. And my feeling was well, if they're living in, in you know North Wales in the in the 15th century, they're almost certainly living in the Scottish Highlands uh, as well, because we, we know the Scottish Highlands have acted as a, a last bastion, if you like, for a variety of predator species, you know, wolves and, and the eagles and ospreys and pine martens. So they were probably living in the Scottish Highlands at, at that time, and, and quite possibly for a little bit uh, later. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if lynx had survived in Scotland uh, until, say, maybe even the 16th century. Right. That's really interesting. Yeah, because the evidence could be out there and just not discovered yeah. uh, yet, I guess, yeah, yeah. even or even even later um, existence. And um, you mentioned, you know, they kind of maybe became extinct, not because of climate, but because of kind of human activity. The two main reasons would be hunting and deforestation, would you say? Yeah, there's the direct pressures from humans of being hunted. And of course, humans hunt animals, and particularly animals like lynx, for a variety of reasons. Um, but they, they might all coincide at the same time. So you might be hunting an animal for fun. Uh, you could be hunting it for uh, because you think it's a pest and you're trying to get rid of it. Uh, and you could be hunting it for uh, a particular resource. Now, in the case of the lynx, that could be its warm, luxuriant winter fur. 
Uh, and we know from like Renaissance era paintings where you know some very rich, powerful people uh, are getting their portraits painted. They're very often wearing things like lynx uh, cloaks and, and collars. It's clearly a, a high value resource uh, that would have been uh, valued by many people. So you know, if people are, are are wanting to get rid of a lynx because they think it's a competitor for their livestock or their deer, well, they might go off and have some fun hunting it and then use uh, the fur and indeed the meat. They might well eat the meat as well. Uh, so. Direct hunting was definitely part of it. Uh, I think also what um, the, the more indirect human pressures would have been the way that we were manipulating the environment to suit our needs, which so we were uh, over-exploiting forests, we were clearing forest land for, for grazing and for, for arable land. Um, and that would have certainly had a pressure. The, the, the grazing animals, of course, would, would have been helping to nibble away the, the sort of regrowth of the forest and perhaps over you know, many centuries of, of heavy grazing pressures, forests start to die off because we were felling them for timber as well. The other thing, yeah. we, of course, we would have probably been doing at the same time is exerting a lot of pressure on wild herbivore populations, certainly deer. Uh, that, you know, we, we know that we've, we, we dramatically reduced uh, the, the geographical distribution in Britain Britain of the roe deer and indeed the red deer. Uh, there were huge areas of Britain where both those species were wiped out and, and they were brought to pretty low population densities in the more remote corners of, of Britain. So a lack of habitat, a lack of food and being directly hunted, you could see how we managed to get rid of that animal fairly quickly, particularly as yeah. the lynx really does need big landscapes. It's a very low density animal. They've got massive home ranges. They prefer to be in quite wooded environments where their favorite prey, the roe deer, tends to be. Uh, and so if you're in a deforested landscape, that's a bit of a disaster for lynx. Uh, and that's, I, I think, we've definitely contributed to their extinction. Yeah, yeah, not a good picture for lynx in Britain. But what about their status in Europe? Um, I believe there, we've two, two, two species in Europe, northern lynx and Iberian lynx, is that right? Yeah, that's right. There's the northern or Eurasian lynx, as it's more often called, um, and the, the Iberian lynx. Um, the Iberian lynx is, I suppose, superficially similar, as are the two other species of lynx that you find on the other side of the Atlantic, the, the Canada lynx and the bobcat. And they've all got yeah. the same basic lynx body plan, uh, quite leggy animals, typically spotty, but not always. Uh, but of course, the two things that I guess really set the lynx apart is the short stubby tail and the tufted ears. So all species have got that. The Eurasian lynx, however, is different from the other three in two main regards, which are connected to one another. One is size. Uh, the Eurasian lynx is, is orbs almost twice the size of the other three species. It's a, it's a much larger animal. Uh, and the reason for that, and perhaps driven by that, is, is the fact that there's a, a significant change in diet. The other three species of lynx are typically hunting smaller game, rabbits, hares, birds, that sort of thing. But as the Eurasian mm. lynx is a big game hunter, it's really after small to medium-sized woodland uh, herbivores, such as uh, roe deer, sometimes red deer calves, in Central Europe, they'll take chamois. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, the Eurasian lynx uh, would have once been found right across Europe, right across Asia to the Pacific coast of Russia, right down to the Himalayas and the Middle East. Um, the Iberian lynx was largely in the Iberian Peninsula, but we, we think they were also living in southern France. Um, but both species experienced massive range contraction because of uh, human effects. The Iberian lynx came perilously close to being... Uh, extinct uh, in the 20th century. Um, they pulled out all the stops in Spain and Portugal and have reversed that decline. There's still a long way to go, but it's a much more positive story. The Eurasian lynx 
from having been a very widespread animal that would have been found all over the continent of Europe, uh, with the exception of perhaps most of the Iberian Peninsula and perhaps southern Italy, um, went uh, extinct in, in Western and Central Europe by the, the kind of mid 20th century. It had been wiped out of you know, huge areas of, of Europe. Uh, and really by that low point in the mid 20th century, it was only really found in those far flung, remote, thickly forested parts of Northern Scandinavia, uh, the big mountain forest complexes of Eastern Europe, such as the Balkans, the Carpathian forest uh, mountains, uh, and the, the large forested areas of Russia and some of the neighboring countries. So um, yeah, massive range contraction. Fortunately, yeah. we have seen something of a recovery for the Eurasian lynx as well. A natural recovery in, in the north and east of Europe, uh, and then a series of reintroduction projects begin to kick off um, from the early 1970s onwards, which see links begin to be restored, actively restored by humans, taking animals from further east into quite busy, I have to say, human environments, typically in mountains uh, in Western Europe. So that's where, where things are at today. Yeah, I was going to say there's a list of countries that have um, successfully reintroduced them now, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. They've been reintroduced into parts of Germany, uh, France, Switzerland, uh, Austria, Italy, uh, Poland, Slovenia. Uh, and not all of these reintroductions were successful. You know, it's worth, it's worth saying that some of them failed for sort of biotechnical reasons. You know, they didn't use enough animals or they didn't have the sex ratio right or the animals weren't quite, um, you know, perhaps uh, uh, trained as supposed to live a wild existence. Uh, or okay. maybe they were even releasing them at the wrong time of year when males and females aren't really interested in each other. Um, but there are also, of course, um, socio-political reasons why these things don't work. If you if you don't work with the local rural communities and they are fearful of what the impacts these links are going to have, then you know it can lead to no acceptance and therefore you know killing yeah. of reintroduced animals. So but you, you know we can learn from the successes and the failures uh, from watching other countries uh, do these things before we even think about it. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So before we talk about those kind of socioeconomic factors and, and kind of resistance and, and reasons for um, for failure, um, who is actively kind of advocating for bringing links back to the UK now? Well, it, it, that's an interesting question, especially in the context of, say, you know, the last 10, 20 years, there's been there's definitely been a mushrooming of interest in the idea of bringing back links. You know, 15, 20 years ago, nobody was really talking about bringing back links. The, the, the mammal reintroduction discussion in the UK was very much focused uh, on beavers uh, and indeed on wolves, because, of course, the Americans reintroduced um, uh, wolves with much fanfare uh, to the Yellowstone National Park in the mid-1990s. And being yeah, an Anglo... Massively, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, being an Anglophonic country, we knew all about that. It was all over our, our kind of popular and scientific media. And uh, the wolf was, therefore, in the back of that, being suggested as a way of tackling what was known as the, the deer problem in the Scottish Highlands. Uh, links mm. were nowhere to be seen. Nobody was really talking about the links as a former native or, or indeed as a potential candidate for reintroduction. And I think that's changed a great deal over the last 10, 15 years. There's now much greater awareness that links is a, uh, you know, a former native and that it could feasibly be reintroduced to the UK, having been, of course, successfully reintroduced um, to lots of European countries. Something that I think that we hadn't really had any sight of Possibly because, of course, these countries don't speak the same language as us, and we don't really know what's going on in the Czech Republic or France or you know or Germany. But we're now much more aware, and um, you know, there's been a little bit of science, and I certainly did my, my PhD 
looking at the feasibility of reintroducing links that that was finished in 2005 at the University of Aberdeen and I I did peer-reviewed papers on the back of that and did a bit of press work on that and I think the word started to get out and, and it's I think it, it probably helped to increase the profile of the links as a candidate to the point yeah. that uh, today there, there's quite a few um, organizations particularly NGOs are, 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 you know, are, are seriously thinking about and indeed talking about bringing back links to various parts of the UK um, there's barely a, a month seems to go by these days when we don't get another press story about somebody wanting to reintroduce them to Wales or to Thetford Forest or to Kielder Forest or the Highlands um, so like I say a, a variety of NGOs um, sticking their toe into the water here with links yeah yeah and we'll talk about the, the practicalities of that in a bit but i think before we do um there is a, there is still quite a lot of opposition we do seem to be you know a nation that's very nervous of predators in in the landscape um somewhat understandably i guess if you are a sheep farmer and you're worried that you know lynx will prey on your sheep but what is the um the likelihood if you are a, you know a sheep farmer in the highlands what is the likelihood that you're going to lose some of your livestock to links if they if they are reintroduced. Yeah, I guess that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, and yeah, and yeah. so much depends on the 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 way that the sheep are, are husbanded. Um, I mean, I have seen yeah. people say, "Oh well, you know, uh, uh, the, the stats in Europe show that uh, you know per links, uh, you know, they only kill zero point four sheep per year." Well, you know, that's a pretty meaningless statistic. What does that even mean? And of course, what you'll find when you look at the relationship between sheep and lynx across Europe is that the relationship varies enormously from country to country, from landscape to landscape, according to a whole range of factors, largely driven by how sheep are looked after. So, for example, um, the, 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 the sort of two opposite ends of the spectrum, I guess, uh, are perhaps the, the Carpathian Mountains of somewhere like Romania, uh, and then the, the mountains and forests of, of Norway. Uh, so what you'll find in Norway is there's a real issue with lynx um, killing sheep every year. Uh, and there's a compensation scheme set up to cope with that. And it's paying out something like 3 million euros a year, which is a lot of money. Uh, wow. And the number of sheep that are being claimed for uh, you know, it could be anywhere between six and ten thousand per year, so not inconsiderable numbers. Um, and so, and then the opposite end of the spectrum, like I say, is uh, you know the the Carpathians of Romania and Slovakia, where interestingly they they've never, unlike Norway, they've never lost their large carnivore populations, whether it's the lynx, the wolves, or the bears. They've always had them, and consequently yeah. they've always maintained their traditional livestock husbandry, you know, intensive shepherding, the use of livestock guarding animals such as dogs. Uh, and, and actually, the, the shepherds in those mountains, they're much more concerned about bears and wolves than they are about lynx. And the measures they take, whether it's the shepherding or the livestock guarding dogs, are very effective at ensuring that there's virtually no losses to lynx at all. In Norway, mm. They lost all their lynx, their wolves, and their bears pretty much. So they got used to not having to think about predators. So they don't shepherd them, uh, and they're grazed in the summer months. You know, from spring through to autumn, they're grazed in forested environments. So there's something like two and a half million sheep being grazed uh, in Norwegian woods. If I can get uh, all lyrical about it, and uh, and in those environments, they're they're vulnerable to lynx and wolves and bears and wolverines and foxes, and all of those carnivores are probably having a go. 
However, it, yeah. it, it's, it's actually quite a, a, a complex subject because a, a team of Norwegian government-funded scientists looked at this situation in Norway and they came to a couple of conclusions. One was they noticed that if you had more than four road year per square kilometre uh, in the landscape, which the Norwegians regard as being quite high density, then even if you had a lot of sheep in your forest, you lost virtually no sheep anymore. Because the, the links are much more interested in roe deer than they are sheep. And it's important to say and to, to be clear about how links hunt. This is a key thing. People often describe to me, you know, they make assumptions about how links hunt and they describe how they think they hunt. And what they end up describing inadvertently is a wolf. And now, right. links and wolves hunt in completely different ways. Now, you know, most people understand that wolves typically or, you know, or certainly often hunt in packs. Links are solitary for a start. One single lynx is half the size of a wolf. And the key thing, the key difference, however, is that lynx are ambush hunters. Wolves are not ambush hunters. They're cursorial or coursing predators. They chase things. They've got tremendous stamina. They can wear down a group of animals over a long period and select the weakest and slowest, etc. Lynx don't do that. They need to launch a surprise attack, and it all needs to be over in a matter of meters and seconds. So cover is really important. Therefore, if you're grazing sheep, uh, in a woodland, there's loads of cover, loads of ambush cover, so the sheep are vulnerable. And that's what makes Nor Norway such an interesting uh, case study, I suppose, as being the, by far and away the worst case scenario in Europe. But when you've got more than four road deer per square kilometre, they're not losing any sheep. What the scientists also found is they did the number crunching, they did the mass and said, hold on, we don't think the lynx are capable of killing the number of sheep that are being claimed for in the compensation scheme. We just don't think. I was going to say, yeah, is this, are people fiddling the numbers? Maybe. Well, it would seem so, uh, or at least they do not have a watertight um, compensation scheme. And now, in many countries, if you're going to make a claim on a compensation scheme, there needs to be some form of verification. A trained person will come out, have a look at a carcass. Um, because invariably a lynx is not going to eat an entire sheep. Um, they'll have a look at the carcass. They'll, they'll look at the way it's been killed or the way it's been bitten. They may well take some uh, DNA swabs uh, and then there'll be some form of verification as to whether it has indeed been killed by a dog or a lynx or a wolf or whatever it is or just been scavenged by foxes. Uh, and yeah. then uh, the, the, the compensation money is paid out on that basis. In Norway, that's not what happens. It turns out that in 97% of compensation claims, there was no form of verification required. So money was changing hands simply because somebody had phoned up and said, I reckon a lynx has killed two or three of my sheep. Uh, and the money you know, will arrive you know, uh, in the post or you know, in, in the bank account. Which, so you can see how mistakes could be made. People are maybe misinterpreting what's happening to their sheep. Uh, they could be getting killed by other predators. They could just be wandering off on somebody else's land or fall off a cliff. Or human nature being what it is, some people may just say, right, I'm going to abuse the system a little bit. Cause easy, I'm, I'm, easy exactly. Money, yeah. I can get away with it. So um, the scientists reckon that in some parts of Norway, the numbers are being uh, exaggerated, either willfully or, or inadvertently, by up to nine times. Uh, so far more links, sorry, sheep are, are, are being blamed, or links, sorry, sheep lost are, are being blamed on links than, uh, than perhaps are, there probably is going on. So um, that's a, a kind of indicator. And just by way of comparison, right next door to Norway, you've got Sweden. Now, Sweden is the second worst case scenario in terms of the numbers of sheep thought to be lost to links every year. 
Interestingly, Sweden has got four times as many links. So it should, in theory, have a bigger issue with sheep than, yes. than next door in Norway. But it doesn't. It has a far, far smaller issue with sheep. So instead of paying out something like 3 million euros worth of compensation every year, in Sweden, they're paying out something in the region of 30 to 40,000 euros right. per year. Uh, so yeah, it's, yeah, absolutely. It's massive. It's like, a, a, you know, getting on for 1% of the money. Uh, and, yeah. and, and instead they're losing perhaps maybe 200 uh, sheep per year instead of thousands and thousands of sheep. And of course, the key difference between Norway and Sweden, and indeed between Norway and most of the rest of Europe, is that sheep are not grazed in the woodland. They're not being grazed in amongst that ambush cover where the lynx are. They're being grazed Grazed in open grassland, is it? Absolutely, yes. Open pastures where it's much harder to launch a surprise attack, where sheep are much more likely to exhibit flocking behaviour. And of course, flocks, uh, that's an anti-predator behaviour. You know, you get yourself into a group. Safety in numbers. Exactly. Loads of noses and eyes and ears to sort of, you know, uh, watch out for any predators. And And the predators know that they've been spotted is particularly if you're an ambush hunter you don't want to you know feel that you've been spotted you're not going to try then so um and that's the case right across um other parts of europe where, where they've also lost the large carnivores and lost their traditional shepherding such as in france and switzerland um, they've kind of got used to not having to worry about large carnivores now those large carnivores are coming back so it's an issue again but actually the losses in places like switzerland are far smaller. You'll find that the majority of lynx are not going anywhere near sheep. And occasionally it's one or two animals occasionally taking sheep opportunistically. Um, and yeah, yeah. and probably deal- on the edge habitat and things like that. Yeah, that absolutely. If you're, if you're grazing sheep uh, in the field next to the woodland edge, then yeah, they are at greater risk than if they're the next field over, for example. Uh, but the, yeah. the, the mere fact that they're not in the woodland and the mere fact that actually they've got loads of deer in Switzerland, loads more than Norway, certainly, because four per square kilometre might be a lot by Norwegian standards, but actually that's really low by many countries, particularly here in the UK, we would we would typically have something like 10, 15, 20 uh, woodland deer per square kilometre. Uh, so it's it's really not an issue. And they deal with it in Switzerland that if a lynx kills more than 15 sheep in a year, it's deemed to be a problem animal. And when that happens, they have a mechanism that allows a state game warden to shoot that problem lynx under licence. But they haven't had to do that since 2003 because it's, right. it's such a rare thing for a sheep to be killed, for, for a lynx to be killing sheep, particularly that many sheep. Um, so typically these days in Switzerland, where they might have you know 300 lynx, they're maybe only losing somewhere between 30 and 50 livestock sheep and goats per year throughout the entire country. So it's a, a really quite a small scale and localized problem. And so taking it back to say Scotland for argument's sake. Yes, we have yeah. a, we have a lot of sheep in the UK as a whole. You know, we're probably the the, the highest sheep population in the whole of, of Europe. Within Scotland, uh, like much of the rest of the UK, the vast majority of our sheep are being grazed in, in open pastures, and the vast majority of our forest contains no sheep. And of course, we do have high densities of woodland deer. All of which would suggest, based on European experiences, that, that losses to sheep are going to be fairly infrequent. They're going to be small scale. They're going to be localised, and you can actually manage it to re- reduce the risks further. But, it, but yeah. what I'm not saying is that lynx would never kill sheep in this country. I, th- I think they probably will. I think it will happen. They can do it, and they probably will do it. Uh, so we just need to be, uh, you know, should we bring lynx back? We just need to be prepared for that. Yeah, and. Um... Again, talking about you know Scottish sheep 
uh, Welsh sheep. I don't want to bash sheep farmers in any way, but if you do read um, Rewilding, you mentioned George Monbiot's book, Feral. Um, you come away with the, from that book, a lot of people I've talked to have come away from it thinking, wow, I never realized the, uh, the amount of damage sheep do. And I think some kind of... Um, very passionate rewilders or even kind of critics of um, of um, sheep farmers would say, actually, we're already, you know, compensating um, and subsidizing sheep production because a lot of upland, especially uh, sheep production, is just not that profitable and it's, it relies on, on government subsidies. So presumably subsidy or compensation schemes will have to be part of um, the picture if, if we bring back predators as well. But um, yeah, I think... There's definitely kind of a opposing views on, on whether sheep should even be continued to be kind of uh, bred or produced on our uplands anyway, because they're, they're not, uh, not profit generating. Yeah, I mean, clearly there are a lot of rural uh, communities that are quite dependent um, in terms of their identity and their economy on sheep farming. It is it's, it's a, a big part of the, the rural culture uh, and indeed economy in several parts of the UK perhaps more so yeah. than many other countries. Um, and uh, who knows the direction uh, that, well, the, the, the direction of travel, I suppose, uh, implied by, you know, the, the land use ch changes that need to happen because of, you know, for example, climate change, we need more woodland cover, we need to repair our peatlands. The fact we're Brexiting, we're coming out of the common agricultural policy, change is definitely afoot. Uh, and I'd be very surprised if we're gonna see more sheep uh, on our hills in, in the years to come. I think we're likely to see fewer sheep um, and, and possibly a movement um, more of sheep away from the uplands into the more um, lowland environments. But who knows? Uh, that all remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah. And um, getting away from the kind of livestock issue, we've explained that really well. Um, loads of great detail there um, that I didn't know. Um, really interesting to hear the difference between, you know, the kind of habitat you're keeping sheep in has having such an impact. But one of the other concerns I've heard is the links Obviously, bringing in an apex predator changes the, the ecosystem and it, it creates um, this fascinating thing called the ecology of fear with herbivores. And, and we saw that, you know, with the massively successful Yellowstone wolf reintroduction that bringing in just a small number of wolves changed the deer's behavior. And then um, the whole river valleys changed and biodiversity flourished and things because deer were more afraid. But one of the questions was what impact would links have any detrimental impact on other species which are um, under threat for example predator and prey examples wildcats scottish wildcats and maybe capricale and, and things like that that are already kind of clinging on in, in small numbers do you think the links will have an impact on those kind of species um potentially but perhaps not in the way that some people might think um i mean i guess there's two uh, main ecological processes that, that links bring to a landscape. One, of course, is, and we've already talked about it, is they, they, they are regularly preying on woodland deer, such as roe deer, such as red deer, uh, other species like fallow deer and seeker deer would certainly also be vulnerable to lynx predation. Um, so they, they, they're killing uh, large herbivores. They're, of course, then leaving the carcass um, on the forest floor, which uh, they will feed on for several days, typically four or five days. Uh, they will keep coming back to that carcass, having slept it off. Uh, now and then for a few hours, they'll keep coming back until they've eaten most of what they, they want to eat. What they don't mm. eat is then available to a wide range of scavengers from you know be yeah. beetles to wild boar to eagles to bears uh, and a lot, whole heap of stuff in between. 
Uh, and of course, ultimately, the stuff that isn't perhaps consumed by animals will will decompose and break down and go into the soil and uh, and, and enrich the soil. So that's um, a big part of what they do is predating on large herbivores and, and creating carcasses. The other thing that's perhaps less obvious and less well known about large carnivores is they typically are uh, killing, not always eating, but certainly killing smaller carnivores. Um, mm. And we know that from America that there's been a bit of interaction between uh, reintroduced wolves and coyotes that had, in the coyotes, absence yeah. uh, of, of wolves, had become top dog. And then when the wolves come back, uh, the coyote population takes a bit of a hammering. Well, we know from um, lots of landscapes around Europe that Eurasian lynx are routinely preying on foxes. And indeed, they, they can prey on um, uh, and kill uh, a whole heap of smaller carnivores, badgers, otters, wildcats, pine martens. All these animals are vulnerable to being killed by the bigger predator. But out, out of all those animals I, I've mentioned, you know, losses um, to lynx of you know otters, badgers, wildcats, pine martens is actually very rare, very small scale losses. Yes, lynx can kill wildcats, but it actually happens very infrequently. Um, the one yeah. thing that they are routinely killing is foxes. Um, they, okay. they seem to, to have a, a special, uh, I don't know if hatred is the right word, but yeah. they're pretty reluctant to share landscape with foxes. And I suspect it's because foxes with their acute sense of smell are far more likely to pick up on the fact that a lynx has killed a deer and there's a carcass lying around. Uh, and so they, exactly, they, they will approach a carcass. It's a bit of a delicate balancing act for the fox. They could wait until, you know, four or five days until the lynx is, is finished with that carcass and then, you know, they're going to be relatively safe. But then, of course, there's all the best bits will have gone. Uh, yeah. Or they could sneak in on day two between um, feeding bouts and, and, and snaffle a bit of leg or whatever, which would be uh, very nice. But then there's a the risk that it gets detected by the lynx and the lynx uh, kills it. So, um, what that suggests, you know, that that, that um, predation of foxes, like I say, is much more prevalent, much more commonplace um, than the other predators. And what foxes, of course, are doing, unlike lynx, foxes are competing with predators such as wildcats for the same food resources. You know, wildcats and foxes are, are both interested in small mammals, you know, mice and voles and rabbits. Lynx are not really interested in that. So lynx don't really compete with wildcats for the same food. The other thing, you know, lynx, yes, you mentioned capricaria. Lynx can kill uh, woodland grouse. It does happen particularly in northern and eastern uh, parts of Europe where deer densities are really low. Uh, and then, you know, they, they kind of switch diet onto smaller games such as mountain hares and black grouse and capricaria. So it can happen. Um, when you get into Western Europe where you've got much higher deer densities, then woodland grouse is a very rare aspect in, in the lynx diet. Um, it happens, you know, um, well, there's, there's a, a good diet study um, of lynx in Switzerland and the Jura Mountains where they looked at um, 29 different lynx in over a 10-year time period. They were radio tracking them, they were snow tracking them, they were picking up their feeding remains. And as you might expect, in 10 years, you know, 90% of what, the, of, of what the, the, the lynx were killing was roe deer and chamois, which is absolutely what you'd expect. Um, in, in those 10 years, those 29 lynx, out of 617 prey animals that, that were recovered, there was one capricale and there was one wildcat. So it gives you 
an idea of how rare it is for lynx in these kind of more deer inhabited environments to be killing both of those species. But interestingly, what was third on the list was red fox, and they killed 37 foxes. So you can see how much more uh, interested they okay. are in killing foxes. And not only are foxes competing with wildcats, but they're also quite a significant predator of capricaly nests and chicks. Uh, I was going to say ground nesting birds, yeah. foxes are the, the real enemy, aren't they? And I think this goes back to taking the, the apex predators out of a system. You get the meso predators like foxes and crows and things like that, that basically are generalists and, and eat pretty much anything. And actually, you know, introducing that ecology of fear and a predator of the meso predators um, may have beneficial effects for some other sensitive species like ground nesting birds, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there, there's science from both Sweden and Finland uh, that is strongly suggestive of what you've just described. Uh, I mentioned right at the beginning how, how lynx had had, uh, had been hemmed back into sort of quiet pockets of, of northern and eastern Europe and that there was massive um, recolonization in the latter half of the 20th century. Well, what the scientists found, because they got loads of very good quality wildlife monitoring data in Sweden and Finland, was that they noticed that as the lynx moved back into its old haunts that had been absent from for decades, um, populations of the smaller games, such as mountain hare, black grouse, and capricaly, actually went up. Now, that might seem counterintuitive at first, but what the scientists believed was happening was, yeah, okay, occasionally lynx might take one of those species, uh, but something that takes it uh, takes them far more frequently, of course, is red fox. And they believe that a combination of, of lynx perhaps directly killing foxes, and but also foxes feeling uh, much less confident and feeling at threat, under threat, and then perhaps moving out of lynx-inhabited regions was, was actually what was causing the resurgence of the, the smaller game. It was that the, 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 the kind of miso predator was being put back in its place by the big predator. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Everything's interlinked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we have seen lynx on the loose in Britain before. I was reading a little bit of kind of the history and um, came across two accounts where there was a, a lynx called Lilith in Aberystwyth that went missing for a couple of weeks from a, a wildlife park and um, another famous Bristol lynx. Um, both of them were eventually shot dead um, because people couldn't handle the fact that they're, they're, they were out there. I've got my own little story, which I shouldn't say too much about, <laughs> give too much away, but in my early days as a vet, um, I trained with a firearms license and things because we did some, did some zoo work and uh, had a page one Saturday morning saying, uh, our lynx is out, can you please come, um, you know, with uh, the darting gear. And luckily, uh, they opened the cage and the lynx went back in. But um, it does happen that, uh, that you know, wild animals escape. And there's, you know, rumours abound about, you know, big cats in Britain and things like that. What is the possibility, I suppose, that um, there's already lynx out there? It's certainly possible, um, and, and, and I, I know of other instances where, where captive lynx have got out. There was another one uh, found in a back garden in, in London uh, about 15 years ago as well. Uh, right. And, and there's, there was a story, I think, in the Daily Mail from 1927 about how three lynx had been on, on the loose having escaped from a travelling circus. So animals you know, do escape, and, and there has been suggestions that have, there have been deliberate attempts to release and, and indeed, I suppose, reintroduce lynx. Um, I mean, the, the borders of Scotland was an area where there was a lot of uh, lynx activity being reported uh, 10, 20 years ago. Um, and, and we have seen clandestine, if you like, releases 
of, of links in other parts of Europe where I guess enthusiasts have been quite keen to reintroduce links without having to go through you know, the, the process of, uh, of securing a license and bringing them in from a foreign country. They've just been letting captive ones go. So there was a book. Well, I was going to say it, it did happen with beavers, didn't it? Like they've been here for 20, 25 years and some of those founder populations were, you know, yeah. <laughs> under... Uh, uh, Outside the law, let's say. Yeah, it, that seems like it was. It may well have been the case, and mixed in with some escapes from captivity. Uh, and there's a, yeah. a bona fide um, links reintroduction uh, has taken place in the Harz National Park in central Germany. And at first, when they did the reintroduction, they didn't have an awful lot of resources, so they, they, they didn't collar the animals. You know, you know, in terms of radio telemetry, they just let them out there. Then, when they got the money a couple of years later. Uh, they thought, oh, crap, well, we better go and trap some of these animals and put collars on them so we can monitor them and know exactly what they're up to and where they're going. And so they started um, you know, trapping lynx in box traps to go and do that. Uh, and they, I think they captured two lynx uh, that had redundant zoo chips uh, under their skin, which had nothing to do with the original release population. Um, so, right. so clearly people have been releasing them. But where there have been attempts to reintroduce links in continental Europe using these uh, clandestine uh, releases, they, not one of them has uh, succeeded in bringing about a, a, a viable, sustained links population. It's not a good way of reintroducing links because, well, you probably need quite large numbers. They probably need to be behaviorally well adapted to life in the wild. Uh, you, you want to make sure they're not genetically closely related, and, and critically, you need to, to put in the hours and do all that uh, that, that hard work of working with local communities uh, to make sure that people are on side. If you don't do that, then I think it's all too easy for these populations to be killed out or just die off. Uh, and so, while I, I think undoubtedly there there have been and may even well still be, you know, one or two links uh, in the British countryside, I don't think what we're likely to see a self-sustaining viable population coming from them. And as I understand it from the various records over the years, uh, the vast majority of big cat sightings in Britain tend to relate to sort of large black panther-like animals or, or, you know, your North American cougar, mountain lion type. Only a very small proportion tend to correspond to the description of a lynx. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's been um, talk and, and press in recent weeks about, you know, bringing them back as if it was happening already. And I know um, that's not the case. We're, we're a long way off. But what needs to happen now to make it a reality? And what's the kind of time scale that you think is involved if it does happen? Yeah, well, you're right. There's been quite a bit of um, press attention, a lot of headlines. It's very easy to get headlines about links, of course, because it's something that people are either inspired by or horrified in equal, uh, by an equal measure. So uh, yeah, it's makes a good story. Absolutely. Um, and it, so, you know, new stories that suggest that links reintroduction is imminent are way off the mark. Uh, this is a complex bit of nature conservation, you know, uh, getting, sourcing the animals, releasing them, monitoring them. That's actually probably the easy part. Uh, the hard part is getting people into a position where rural communities and indeed politicians feel comfortable that there's not going to be a massive conflict. Uh, and that yeah. takes a lot of hard work and a lot of time to build relationships and build trust and have a respectful dialogue. And I think if you don't do that, you're in hiding to nothing. You know, the, the project's success isn't um, when the, you know, the day the cage doors swing open. It's whether you've still got a successful, viable lynx population 10, 20, 50 years hence. Uh, and like I say, yeah. that, that takes a lot of hard work. So that shouldn't be underestimated. And I think, to be honest, I think the biggest barrier 
at the moment to a successful links reintroduction is just the, the lack of understanding there is. And we talked about it right at the beginning about, uh, you know, people don't really have uh, much uh, awareness of links. You know, why on earth should they? They haven't lived here for centuries. It's not an animal we see on the telly very often. We don't have, you know, stories about them. Uh, and people, um, you know, fear the unknown or, uh, and certainly, you know, if they've got knowledge gaps, they will make assumptions. Uh, and very often yeah. those assumptions are incorrect. So for me, the most important thing that needs to be happening at the moment is a sort of greater awareness and understanding of what a lynx is, how it behaves, and how it relates uh, to us and our economic activities. Uh, I think once people, more people uh, have got up to speed with that, then I think we can have a more constructive, uh, progressive conversation uh, about lynx reintroduction. Definitely, yeah, um, and I think like you reminded me there of the the heartbreaking uh, issue where you know white-tailed eagles were introduced reintroduced into Ireland, and um, unfortunately, you know some of the chicks were shot or poisoned and, and things like that. It it takes a while, doesn't it, to change minds, and um, you know generations have grown up in the countryside thinking, you know, predators are are the enemy and you know they need to be controlled and things like that so it is a very difficult cultural thing to break that you know it'll be fine we're going to reintroduce this large predator and it, and to date obviously it's going to be the largest predator we've ever uh, reintroduced back into the UK um but you always see that in the early kind of reintroduction projects with predators like eagles and, and so on there is going to be a level of persecution um at the start no doubt isn't there yeah, there's certainly going to be uh, concern, there's going to be suspicion, uh, and there may well be uh, people taking the law into their own hands. And that's not something that's unique to the British Isles. Um, we know from uh, across Europe that lynx um, are killed illegally um, right across the continent. Uh, and it doesn't really matter how wealthy or poor the country is. Uh, it doesn't matter how good the police and the judiciary are. It doesn't even matter necessarily whether you've got legal hunting um, or strictly protected. It does seem that that is a fact of life or, or indeed death for lynx that they, they do succumb to illegal persecution. Um, and actually, yeah. the number one conflict, and this is possibly contrary to the expectation of many people, particularly here in the UK, the number one conflict between lynx and people in Europe isn't actually about livestock, which is what we often assume. It's actually about competition for deer. Um, and many right. European countries, um, the hunting of deer is a much more populist activity, as in a, a greater proportion of the population engage in, say, you know, deer hunting. Um, and so, for example, in, in Norway, Per head of population, you're 60 times more likely to to shoot deer than you are if you're in the UK, um, and that's across um, socio-economic classes. I yeah, absolutely. Whereas well. I think uh, it tends to be more skewed in the UK towards certain socio-economic groups, typically people who are perhaps more wealthy. It's a much yeah. um, more grassroots activity in many European countries, and of course, in some of these countries, and I, and I mentioned Norway, deer density is actually a lot lower. Um, than they are uh, in the UK. So having a large carnivore in there that, that is basically has ecological function is week in, week out to, to kill deer yeah, and is very good at it. Arguably, they're better at doing it than, than humans are because they're, you know, yeah. they're super sensed to do that and they've evolved over you know, hundreds of thousands of years to do that. Then you can imagine how there may well be a bit of tension uh, if you've got a lot of deer hunters, not terribly many deer and quite a healthy lynx population. Uh, and that is, like I say, the, 
perhaps the most common uniformly uh, abundant conflict across Europe, whereas the livestock conflict uh, is much less uniform. There are countries where it isn't an issue, countries where it is, and even within those countries, it, it may well vary in space and time as well. So, um, yeah, like I say, humans uh, and lynx have not always got on terribly well. Um, but it only takes, you know, a small group of people with the means to do so, you know, perhaps people with firearms, if they don't want to accept links, then they can make a big difference uh, to the success or otherwise of a lynch reintroduction. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if it happens, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, it will need to, you need to bring in a significant number of links to create that kind of genetic diversity in the founder population and to, to help them um, establish a foothold. But uh, going forward, how many links would, for instance, the Cairngorms National Park support? Like, links are not going to be roaming the country in great numbers. You know, they they are uh, wide ranging. So, what kind of home ranges would they have? How dense would their populations be? How many links would we expect? You know, if it was a success in maybe Scotland or Britain entirely, mm -hmm. um, what kind of numbers are we talking about? Well. The, the density of links that a landscape can support, uh, and, you know, and equally the, the size of their home ranges is driven by two things. One is gender. So male links typically have bigger home ranges or territories than female links. Yeah. Uh, and they typically don't tolerate other males within their home ranges. Females have got smaller home ranges and they won't tolerate other females in their ho home ranges, but they're happy to be uh, encompassed by a male home range. So one male home range might have access to two or three female home ranges over the course of the year, which comes in obviously pretty handy in the mating season in the late winter. Yeah. Um, the other thing that drives the size of home ranges and therefore the, the density of links and therefore the number that you could support in any landscape is the availability of prey. There's a pretty right. strong relationship between prey uh, density and links density. Um, and prey densities tend to vary. Uh, quite a bit across uh, the UK. So there are some you know, reasonably well-forested parts of the UK, such as in the Welsh mountains, where there's there's a fair bit of of uh, forest, albeit plantation, that doesn't necessarily matter, but actually where deer densities are very, very low, in which case it's not an ideal habitat for lynx and, and home ranges would need to be massive enough for the densities to be very low. And Scotland, I mean, I, I did my PhD looking at this, this very thing and um, basically what I did was I used um, habitat data that we had from Switzerland from real radio collared links moving around the landscape. We had a really good sense of what habitats they use and what they don't use and, and how they disperse to move across perhaps less um, suitable landscape to get to the next optimal habitat. Um, and so I applied that data to Scotland and identified two habitat networks. Um, one that occurred in the south of Scotland, in the southern uplands, but which straddled the border with Northumberland into Kielder. Uh, and then a, yeah. a much larger habitat network north of Scotland's quite densely populated central belt, so the area north of Edinburgh and Glasgow, uh, a network that stretched right across the highlands from Argyle to Aberdeenshire up to Sutherland. Uh, so much bigger and with higher densities of prey. Uh, and so a combination of the size of the habitat and, and the availability of prey meant that at the time I did this research, uh, southern Scotland and Kielder could probably support a population of about 50 links, whereas the highlands uh, could support a, a lot more, perhaps there are 400 links. Um, so that gives you some idea of, of how many links a land, uh, you know, and how much space a lynx population needs. And I would suggest you're probably needing something like 
you know, maybe 200 links for long-term viability. Uh, if you want to be quite involved and manage that population in a much more hands-on way by taking in animals from the continent every 20, 30 years to boost the gene pool, then, you, you know, you could do that with a, a smaller number of links. But 200 yeah. is possibly you know, the sort of thing we might want to be aiming for. So the Highlands could comfortably uh, accommodate that now. Uh, and indeed, uh, you know, I did that research a number of years ago. We've actually got more woodland now than we did back then. So the, the carrying capacity for lynx has probably gone up. And that's probably likely to be the case for the southern uplands as well. In England, um, the, the, the available habitat patches and networks are smaller. Um, and of course, what you do have in certain parts of England are much higher human population densities, which in itself isn't necessarily a problem, um, but there can be indirect consequences of things like a dense road work, which uh, road network, which might make it harder for links to to move. They're scared to cross big roads, area. Uh, yeah. or of course they could, they do cross the road and they get hit by by traffic or or indeed trains as well on railway lines. Um, so you know, th there's been some recent modelling of of links habitat suitability in England and Wales. Which has shown that, yeah, Gilder Forest uh, as part of that network across the border in Scotland uh, could support links. Uh, a, a habitat network in the southeast of England, uh, in fact, is, is, is pretty well wooded in parts of southeast England, and there's a reasonably high prey uh, populations in there, but you, you're sharing it with an, an awful lot of human beings. Um, and like, yeah. like I say, that's not necessarily a problem. We know, for example, that in the the mountains of the Swiss Jura Mountains on the border between France and Switzerland, there's 120 people per square kilometre living in that environment. It's a busy environment. There's roads, there's railways, there's towns, there's people recreating at the weekends, there's people hunting and farming, and there's forestry. So it's not an, an uninhabited wilderness by any stretch, 120 people per square kilometre. But by comparison, you know, the Highland region uh, in Scotland has nine people per square kilometre. Uh, and, wow. and the southeast of England probably has a human population density four times higher uh, than the Swiss Jura, and therefore will have lots of, of busy roads, which may well be a significant cause of mortality as indeed it is in Switzerland uh, and that's with a lower population density so various parts of Britain I would say um, they, 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 they'd be dropping down in terms of the suitability for links and perhaps uh, the Scottish Highlands is uh, in some ways the best because it's the largest area of well-connected habitat and it's got pretty good um, prey densities in there there's also a pretty um, flourishing nature-based tourism industry in the Scottish Highlands. I mean, the Highlands and Scotland as a whole are very yeah. dependent on tourism. Um, I was just going to say, what do you think are you know the ecotourism benefits? They're probably not the obvious ones because people are unlikely to see links, but um, just having a, a kind of more natural suite of, of um, kind of flora and fauna and the impacts that, that links will have on those ecosystems probably would benefit ecotourism, wouldn't they? Yeah, you're, you're spot on, Sean. Uh, it's not an animal that it's um, going to be very easy to see. It's certainly not the sort of thing that you would pay good money uh, and sit in a hide uh, and watch the links. Uh, you know, you might be able to do that with nesting ospreys. Uh, you can do that with bears and wolverines in places like Finland, for example. I've done it myself. Uh, and in some Baiting pine martens to come for a good photo. Exactly, like exactly. <laughs> and we do, of course, that happens in the highlands. You know, things like ospreys and pine martens and red squirrels and goodness red knows squirrels, and eagles yeah. it's all part of the, the the kind of um the product the 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 visitor product that we sell you know fantastic scenery and exciting wildlife uh, although yeah. and it's a great thing to engage people with what's going on up there and, and 
and that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I mean, uh, uh, the, the, the difficulty with links is they're shy, elusive, they're active at times of day when we're usually tucked up in bed and they don't really want to be seen by people. Uh, wolves, you know, they tend to move around quite semi-open environments. There are parts of Europe and indeed North America where you can set up your telescope. Uh, and uh, if you're there at the right time of day and, and there's people on walkie-talkies, mobile phones, spreading the intel about where the wolves are, you can actually get yeah. a glimpse of the wolf pack as it moves through the landscape. But with lynx, you can't really do that. They're, they're not going to be moving around in open habitats terribly easily or predictably. They don't come to bait in front of a hide in the way that bears and wolverines do. So much harder to drive a, a direct and obvious uh, tourism revenue from. But as you've hinted, um, they are part of a wider suite uh, of species. Uh, and in fact, I think where the lynx comes into its own uh, is its potential to be used as a branding icon. Uh, because I was going to say they'd be an, almost an emblem of wild Scotland if it happened, wouldn't they? Yeah, and that's how they're used in other parts of Europe to market areas to, to visitors, um, particularly some of the German national parks that have reintroduced links. They, you know, the Hearts Mountains describes itself as the, 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 the kingdom of the links where you can experience incredible wilderness. It's not, you know, wilderness by any stretch of the imagination. It looks a lot like parts of Scotland, you know, lots of, you know, spruce trees and quite hilly ground. Um, but in people's minds, the the, the links, good marketing. It, it is good marketing. <laughs> there's no doubt about it, and it works uh, because in people's minds, the lynx is a very wild and beautiful creature. It's very photogenic. It's the epitome of a wild wild beauty, uh, and and uh, and actually, increasingly, that's what people want to experience. They want to go to places that are wild and beautiful. And if they know that there's an animal like a lynx out there, they, they know the chances of seeing it are very slim. But just being in that environment gives a, a, an extra frisson of excitement, I suppose, and and possibly some. Something yeah. you might catch a glimpse of it and, and like i say that that has really helped boost um interest in some of these german national parks with, uh, with the german public they, they want to be in links country and so that, that's how i think how it would work, it would work with uh, wildlife tourism yeah and it's something that george monbiot in feral describes is that he wants rewilding to happen because he wants the excitement and just that feeling of being in a landscape that has predators and has these magnificent creatures, even if he doesn't see them. There is something quite magical about getting back to that kind of primal landscape where we're not the top predator, you know, mm. and we do have true wilderness around us. There is something in that for people, I think, yeah. especially, you know, more and more as we get disconnected from nature and wild landscapes as well yeah yeah and that's why the rewilding movement is is kind of moving into the mainstream now isn't it and um, it's capturing the public's imagination very well yeah it, it definitely has grown and i think it continues to grow i mean there are no doubt there are still many detractors out there and people who are uh, feel threatened by it um but what i'm noticing in the last year or two is is it's really beginning to go mainstream to the point that some of the more traditional um uh rural uh, organizations such as the, the rural property uh, agents are now starting to market the states as having the potential for rewilding or having the potential for native woodland restoration um, and and I think you know yeah. there is definitely they're noticing that there's a market uh, amongst um, people to buy estates for those purposes so uh, right or wrongly I, I think we may well see more of that happening and that, that I think is a really interesting indicator that this has become really quite mainstream yeah well you can count me as one of those uh 
those people who's jumped on the bandwagon maybe, but <laughs> definitely want to uh, get into rewilding myself uh, when when I can, mm. when um, things at the situation allows. Um, what do you think, David, is just to kind of wrap up? Do you think, number one, do you think it's going to happen that links are going to be reintroduced and what kind of time scale do you think is realistic oh you're really putting me in the hot seat there um yeah i i think uh, there's every chance <laughs> he said diplomatically that uh, that links reintroduction could happen in the uk i i think there are a number of trends uh, that you know that suggest the direction of travel uh, means that links reintroduction is going to be more likely uh, in the years to come. You know, we're going to have more and more woodlands, i.e., more and more links habitat, quite possibly more and more deer. And and obviously, as we try to grow more and more woodland for you know whether it's for timber or whether it's for for nature conservation or whether it's for carbon, um, you know, managing the, the the costs and impacts of of deer is going to become a bigger and bigger issue and it is an expensive thing we spend you know tens of millions of pounds on things like deer fencing uh, and we're actually yeah. going to be ramping up the amount of woodland creation that we're doing in the uk and certainly we're seeing that in scotland you know the woodland creation figures are going from ten thousand hectares per year to fifteen thousand hectares a year in the next uh, few years so um and i think deer deer management impacts are going to be an issue and and we may well see less scope for conflict uh, as there may well depending how things work out there may well be fewer free-ranging sheep in the uplands uh, which might reduce the uh, potential for flashpoint there so i think it's um it, it, it's quite likely that we'll see links happening uh, in the uk um quite when gosh well that depends really uh, on how that discussion how that national dia- dialogue plays out if it can be conducted uh, sensitively, delicately, respectfully, then yeah, why not? Then maybe uh, people who live in the countryside get more comfortable with it. Maybe the politicians get more comfortable with it and they're more likely to give things licenses um, and, and perhaps uh, you know, pay for you know, prevent- damage prevention schemes, whether that's using you know, livestock guarding dogs or a compensation scheme or fencing, uh, it may well happen. So who knows, it may well happen you know, within 10 years. It's, it's, it's certainly not impossible. Great, yeah. Um, and I think, is it pessimistic to say maybe that uh, we might be hoping for too much to have wolves and bears back as well in our lifetime? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I guess you need to keep eating your superfoods uh, and try and live as long as you can. I mean, wolves yeah. wolves and bears are definitely uh, a different kettle of fish. Um, wolves um, are much more... Um, difficult to predict in terms of where they're going to be uh, you could release them in one landscape and they could pop up somewhere else just because they're very good at long distance uh, movements uh, yeah. we know that people tend to be more fearful of wolves we know that wolves can have more impacts on things like livestock um, so uh, whilst they are popping up in, in some of the, 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 the least wild landscapes in Europe you know like Belgium and the Netherlands and, and Denmark they're just trotting there from you know they're coming th- from Poland through Germany and turning up in these places yeah. they can't really do that of course in the uk they need to be brought here uh by somebody and then of course it gets way more political um so i, I don't anticipate wolf reintroduction happening anytime soon uh bears i suppose many people perceive them as being a threat to human safety which you know 
they can be, although it tends to be, I think our perceptions of bears are perhaps colored by grizzly bears in North America, which are quite a bit more dangerous. Uh, yeah. And, and arguably the, the, the ecological case for, for bears isn't quite as strong because they're not routinely killing deer in the way that lynx and wolves are. And of course they spend much of the, the winter uh, asleep, um, not really yeah, eating yeah. anything. They're much more omnivorous. They? Exactly, they are much more omnivorous. A lot of what they're eating isn't, isn't meat at all. So uh, there's a stronger ecological case for wolves for sure. Uh, and and I, I would actually, I would say that ecologically, you know, the habitat and the prey is there for them, but it is entirely a socio-political issue. Um, and I don't see that one happening anytime soon. Yeah, a, a topic for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you can come back because that has been an absolutely fascinating discussion and I've really enjoyed it. Um, thank you for coming on again. Um, so to finish up, I want to talk about your book. Um, I have got a reading list as long as my arm and it's one of the, one of the books on it um, that I'm kind of working my way through at the moment. But I've had a look um, at it and uh, it seems fascinating. I'd recommend it to everyone. It's called The Lynx and Us. Um and the photography in it, David, is absolutely phenomenal. Um, where did those photographs come from? Well, yeah, it is an absolutely beautiful book. And, and I can say that because I took none of the photographs uh, and was not involved in yeah. any of the designer layout of the book. But it is a really nice book. You know, it's sort of thing you might you know give as a present or, or, or covet yourself. The photography yeah. was done by a friend of mine, a French friend of mine who lives in Switzerland called Laurent Gélin. Uh, and I would yeah. argue he's got the finest portfolio of wild lynx images in Europe. He's taken all his photographs of lynx in the wild uh, in the mountains of Switzerland, um, some of them with long lens work, some of them with camera traps. And, and I know, of, you know from my own experience of camera traps, I usually get a, a pheasant or a, or a, a Labrador's backside and it'll be, out, of, I, yeah. and it'll be yeah. out of focus and, and the, the, the camera's covered in, in raindrops. But his, his camera yeah. trap photography is exquisite. It, it's nauseatingly so from my point of view, I have to say. So um, yeah, we're very fortunate to be able to team up with, with Laurent on that. Uh, and, and really what the book is trying to do is, is take what we know about you know links from, from various European countries, take that science and the experiences that people have living alongside them and present it in, a, in a, an accessible way and, and in a balanced way and, and kind of talk about some of the, the problems as well as some of the opportunities because I think it's important to be to be honest about those. And so really the hope is that, uh, that people will read the book uh, and feel a lot more confident in their understanding of, of what the lynx is and, and how it lives and, and, and that all-important relationship between the lynx and us. Yeah, brilliant. Um, where can people buy the book, David? Um, it's uh, available largely online. You'll get it on Amazon. Um, for those people who are familiar with NHBS, you can buy it there too. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, you can buy it from the website of the publisher, which is an organization called Scotland The Big Picture, where, which is yeah, a... I'd like to talk to you about them, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, they're a small yeah. social enterprise based uh, here where I live in the Cairngorms National Park. Um, so, And they do lots of great work in terms of communicating um, ecological restoration and rewilding. So like I say, they, 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 they published this book with me. So if you're at all interested in getting a little bit more cash to a small social enterprise in the Cairngorms, by all means, uh, buy it from the Scott and the Big Picture website. Definitely. I'm, I will be doing that. I'm actually getting James Shooter from Scotland, the big picture on as a guest uh, in the next couple of weeks. We're trying to tie up dates. Ah, good so, stuff. Uh, there, there is more on the big picture of Scottish rewilding to come. Excellent. But look, 
David, that was um, fascinating. As I say, thanks so much for coming on. It's been really, really interesting. Um, where can people find out more about kind of links reintroduction uh, and things if they wanted to do further reading apart from your book, obviously? Well, I, I would actually recommend uh, the website of Scotland, The Big Picture. Um, I, I have done a, a photo essay for those guys that's on their website. Uh, and there's some information on their website about uh, a new developing project called Links to Scotland, um, which is really starting to dip its toe in communicating with some of the, the kind of communities uh, in Scotland about what it might mean to have links and, and try and assess their feelings about that. Um, so by all means, check out uh, check out their website. Brilliant. Okay. All right. Well, look, um, we'll sign off. Again, thanks a million for coming on. Um, it's been really, really great. Um, for listeners out there, uh, do hit subscribe if you're listening and enjoying the show. Um, it is available on Spotify, iTunes, and Acast and all other podcast platforms. So share share the word. And if you want to support any of the production costs of um, the podcast, which are self-funded, um, I would appreciate any, uh, any help on Patreon or on ACAST supporter. Um, so with that, it's over and out. And thanks again to David. Thanks very much, Sean, for having me on. No problem. Thanks. Cheers.